0: Conversations, the podcast where those who work with teaching others new skills learn from others in fields they may never have thought about, especially rehab, music, and teaching. I'm Diana Rumrell. Today on episode three, I'm very fortunate to have spoken with Adrian Lowe. He is a physical therapist and researcher who I first encountered taking a continuing education physical therapy class that he taught on neurodynamics in 2013. I used the principles of mobilization of the peripheral nervous system. Um, you know, one thing that people may have heard of um, if you're a therapist or you know, neural tension or nerve glides that I learned in that class frequently to this day with my patients. But I was also very interested in the research he does on neuroplasticity in the role of pain. You'll hear him explain about his work on the podcast. You can find out more about his work on evidenceinmotion.com. He also offers classes for clinicians on medbridge.com, and his books are available at your favorite online booksellers. One thing I mentioned when we first started talking was that I saw central sensitization mentioned recently in a medical chart, and I realized I don't think We specifically defined that term in our conversation. One simple definition of this could be hypersensitivity to pain as a result of maladaptive neuroplastic changes, central changes. Here's Adrian Lowe's bio. Adrian earned his undergraduate master's degree and Ph.D. in physiotherapy from the University of Stellenbosch in Cape Town, South Africa. He is an adjunct faculty member at St. Ambrose University and the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, teaching pain science. Adrian has taught throughout the US and internationally for 25 years at numerous national and international manual therapy, pain science, and medical conferences. He has authored and co-authored over 100 peer-reviewed articles related to spinal disorders and pain science. Adrian completed his Ph.D. on pain neuroscience education and is the director of the Therapeutic Neuroscience Research Group, an independent collaborative initiative studying pain neuroscience. Adrian is a senior faculty pain science director and vice president of faculty experience for Evidence in Motion. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So I'm here with Adrian Lowe. Thank you so much again for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Oh, you're welcome, Diana. It's nice to be here.
0: I wanted to just quickly say why it was that I was interested in um, interviewing you. Um, I took a course with you now 10 years ago, the Neurodynamics, the Body's Living Alarm System, way back in 2013. Um, uh, I was really interested in what you were talking about. But the reason I was interested in taking your course at that time was way back my very last semester in physical therapy school in 2000, May 2000, we had a lecture from a researcher named Nancy Bell, who yes. was talking about her research with uh, monkey brains. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, And she was specifically talking about repetitive strain injuries um, in, you know, pain and focal dystonia from that and um, she was the first person I had ever heard talk about the somatosensory cortex and mapping Mm -hmm. Um, and it it was amazing to me and I remembered it that whole time so I just wanted to kind of give a you know paint a little picture of the um, you know the long time I've been pondering all these things um, and then f- finally, the the last piece I wanted to say was it was it took until last week in June 2023 for me to finally see in a doctor's note um, that the doctor had brought up central sensitization um, with a patient. So 23 years later, I'm finally starting to see, you know, a little bit um, emerge in actual notes from other clinicians. So. Um, I, I wanted to just, you know, lay that groundwork and say, um, you know, maybe you could introduce yourself briefly and your, and your work and, um, Ooh. start talking about what it is that you do.
1: Yeah. Um, well, again, yeah. Thanks for having me. And yeah, Nancy Beale, I mean, we might as well just stop now. She's the grand dame of neuroplasticity and, uh, I think the world of her work, um, yeah, I think the easiest way for me, um, I'm a physical therapist, trained as a physical therapist, um, started in the orthopedic domain, and then very quickly figured out I have no idea what I'm doing, um, and found pain science. And if you talk about pain in 2023, and even before that, pain and neuroplasticity goes hand in hand. And so, you know, we we now know that a human's pain experience is way more complex than just simply an injury, and, and you have pain in the injury gets better, your pain goes away. This incredible complex changes in the central nervous system and the brain and whatever. And so my journey into pain science happened because I couldn't help people with chronic pain. Um, got interested in it, got trained by amazing people, influenced by people like David Butler, Laura Mosey, some very, very cool people out there. Um, and then uh, decided, hey, might as well do a PhD in it and um, do my PhD in the world of pain science, pain neuroscience, um, with a heavy emphasis on teaching people about pain. But as we did that, You know, a lot of my research focused on the brain and how the brain um, adapts to to people in pain. And we now, there's a huge part of pain science in the plasticity world with greater motor imagery, um, you know, learned behavior. The whole brain is plastic anyway. And so, um, yeah, it's still, we haven't forgotten the tissues, the neurodynamic stuff we taught you years ago um, is actually finding its way beautifully into the central nervous system with um, immune function, glial cell activity. What happens in the periphery doesn't stay in the periphery, and we now know, there are significant changes that occur in the periphery in the nervous system that drives central changes and those kind of things. But, um, easy answer. Um, I'm a scientist, I'm a researcher, uh, educator. Um, yeah, a little bit of everything. And I take the trash out on Thursdays and cut the grass usually on Monday evening. So a little bit of everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's
0: a great summary. Um, <laughs> I was wondering, I know this is probably, you know, a question we could talk about for a month, but, yeah. um, so what is pain, anyway?
1: Oh, yeah. Let's start with this month-long conversation. Um, mm-hmm. On the most basic premise, it's it's an individual human experience. Um, you know, pain is complex, especially chronic pain. Chronic pain is very, very complex. Um, it's it's definitely an experience, it's an emotional experience it's a physical experience, it's a little bit more complex, I can very simply quote the International Association of Study of Pain's definition of pain but it becomes a little bit academic in some ways but the key parts of it, it, it is in, it's individual, my pain is not your pain, um, it is complex, it is an interplay of um, sensory information but there's also significant emotional aspects to pain um, it's it's a perception of threat as the brain protects. The brain is an ultimate protect um, system that um, if it perceives a threat, it will protect you. And one of the most incredible things you can do to turn on pain, um, pain is a conscious construct. I mean, we can spend all day again and again talk about what is consciousness. And that is people pay levels above me that have no idea what consciousness is. We know we just know if we alter consciousness, we can alter pain as we see with things like hypnosis or um, we anesthetize you or put you under um you know uh for a surgery those kind of things but yeah i mean it it can be the simplest ways uh, if you ask a patient by the way diana if we add a patient here as a third person to this interview and ask him what is pain i say i don't know it just bloody well hurts right um for the, exactly. we assign We, we, we know like it when
0: we feel it
1: yeah yeah you have it and it hurts and it's not fun and nobody likes it and um but it's it's a normal experience without it we know we would be in trouble uh, people that cannot experience pain do not live long, unfortunately, because they don't have the learned behaviors of heart is bad, sharp is bad. Um, think about a, diabe- a person with diabetes that don't feel their feet and they step in a nail or there's an infection. So pain protects us. Pain is a beautiful protection. And people with pain, persistent pain especially, does it a little bit too well. The system adapts plasticity. And then it becomes supersensitized, which we get into things like allodynia, hyperaltesia, but... um. Yeah, yeah, we could spend all day. This is a very cool question for a coffee morning session, but um, it's it's an emotional experience. It's individualized. Uh, there's a sensory aspect to it. It is complex, um, but it's a person's pain. It's the the, the, the person that owns the pain. It's their pain. Um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you thank an you.
0: No, that <laughs> that's great because I know as a you know person who went to PT school some decades ago, that was definitely. Not how we learned about pain at the time. It was more a uh, you know a stimulus and pain, and of course yeah. you're going to do these mechanical interventions, and then the pain is supposed to go away, and then all your patients will get better. So, um, so thank you for you know giving a a, a quick summary of that. And um, could you talk about you know you know neuroplasticity in and pain? Just um, yeah. what is this mapping idea? With the somatosensory cortex.
1: Yeah, so so we now know that when somebody experiences pain, there are functional and structural shifts in the brain. There are two major things that happen to the brain. The first one is functional, which um you know is 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 really where the different parts of the brain start doing different things. So for example, we know that the hippocampus deals with memory, right? That's our primarily our area focusing on memory. But when pain comes along, we struggle with pain, we deal with pain, we go from doctor's visit to doctor's visit, the hippocampus actually becomes part of the pain signature in the brain. There's more activity in those areas. So those are the functional areas that are associated with movement, associated with focus concentration, with memory, suddenly becomes part of this pain processing. So those areas now struggle. They become, in our terminology, we always say the brain hijacks, pain hijacks the brain. So that's a functional shift. So now people start saying things like, you know, I get mentally fat- tired, I get fatigued, uh, I get the fog, if you will, um, in, in a simple way, they don't move as well, those things. But on the flip side, there is also structural shifts in the brain, where we actually shift the structure of the brain. And a lot of our work has been done in the primary somatosensory the cortex. Um, there are sensory maps all over the brain. It just happens to be that that one is the most well studied. That's the one that Penfield Picture in 1937 and you know what's shocking is in 2023 as we do this interview um penfield was very very correct uh we have since done numerous remapping studies and brain studies or whatever and i mean these maps are almost identical it didn't we. it's not wow. that you messed it up so it's like wow how stinking cool was that so it's so,
0: amazing
1: yeah so so the bottom line is you know the way we describe it to most people is the fact that your body um, is represented in the brain. There is a finger in the brain. There is a there are lips in the brain. There's a back. There's a neck. There's a knee. There's a shoulder. And when life is good, and what that really implies is, we're, we're, I don't hurt. Right. Right now, as I'm talking to you, my hands are moving. I pick up my cup of coffee. I point at things. My my body is moving well. I don't have any problems. That map is really sharp. So if I were to ask you, Diana, to close your eyes and take your right index finger and touch your nose, you don't end up with your left your thumb of your left finger in your ear. Even when I take vision away, there's a map. It knows that this is my hand, not a foot. It's a right hand, not a left hand. This is the index finger, not the middle finger. And in space, I can coordinate and put it on my nose, not on my ear because it's because of that map. So when that map is sharp, the, uh, when, when we move a lot, we move healthy and life is good. Those maps are sharp. We know what our body parts are. When people don't move and don't move well and not a lot, those maps actually undergo structural changes. And so the good example would be if you put your foot in a cast or a brace long enough, and you take it out, you kind of feel wobbly for a few days, like it doesn't feel right, because that map hasn't been exercised, the the, the brain map itself. So there are three main consequences that we're aware of in the pain world. There's more, but these three have been studied. We start getting what we call smudging. Now smudging, the word doesn't sound cool, but it really means the map is getting a little blurred. It's not being exercised. These maps are dynamically maintained. They're genetically coded. You're born with these maps. So even if I got born without a hand, there's a hand in my brain. And so um, those maps are genetically coded regardless, but they're environmentally sculpted. So it's use it or lose it. Right. And as a therapist right now, we should be gushing of excitement because that's what we do. So when you use the body parts, the maps are sharp and crisp. We know this is right. This is left. This is an index finger. This is it's you can you can maneuver them. But what happens when you have pain and you don't move or you're afraid to move because it's going to hurt or it's been immobilized, the map gets blurred, which means you don't know exactly. It, it, you know it's your hand, but it takes a little longer to identify it, the maps get a little bit messed up. Uh, we see this very easy in therapy, in medicine, when you give a patient a body chart and say, just show me where you hurt. These maps are not defined. They They, they basically don't color in the index finger. They color the hand. Right. And these things have been correlated to mapping studies, brain scans and whatever. So but we can quickly pick these up. In research, we can do big brain scan studies and show the mapping between a healthy person and a person in pain. So these maps get altered. The second thing is the size of it, the shapes change. So suddenly the hand looks bigger than normal or it looks smaller. Typically it's larger. Uh, we don't know why in some people it makes it larger or smaller, but there's a there's a disturbance in the size of it. And the interesting thing is that the bigger an, an extremity looks, so if my hand looks bigger, the brain actually produces more pain to protect it and mm. uh, there's more swelling. But if I can alter it in therapy, make your hand actually look smaller, which we can do through things like virtual reality or we can have lenses on your on, on your face that can shrink this, the image, the pain can be modulated. So the brain actually pays attention to these sizes. And then the third thing, it has a problem with left and right. Um, a normal person will look at a hand and in about two seconds figure out this is right or left. And if I showed you a series of images just quickly fast, you can go left, right, right, left, right, left, left, right. Um, We know what normal values are, but people in pain take way longer to figure out if it's left and right. And they're typically wrong. So there's a disturbance in these maps. And when the brain gets worried about its body in a simple way, like say, you know, is that my hand? Is it left? Is it right? Is it bigger? Is it smaller? The brain's threat goes up. So it will produce pain to protect that area. So now we find people coming in after a brace or a cast and say, my hand hurts. Um, even when I just think about moving it, it hurts. So these things that patients have been telling us for decades that we kind of like, nah, no, there's no way, come on. We now go, oh my gosh, they were right. Our, our patients are way smarter than us. And then we engage into therapeutic strategies to correct the that representation in the brain and when the brain goes oh there's my hand it's my hand not my foot it's right it's not left the brain can dampen the system and that's plastic that means it shifts and so that's probably the simplest easiest shortest version of how we look at neuroplasticity in the in the brain there is plastic events in the periphery and the spinal cord as well but um, the brain ones are kind of the cool ones if you will those are the ones that students typically get the oohs and the ahs and the how cool is that so uh, yeah
0: yeah, great. Thank you. That was a that was a, a great summary of uh, many things. Um, something that has struck me over the years is how quickly uh, changes happen. Um, I think that years ago, or maybe I, I, it was just me that had this idea that I thought it took a really long time uh, for plastic changes to occur.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If you know, if 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 in 1996, I would have told you if you take two fingers and you wiggle them forward or back we'll find two fingers in your brain. If we took athletic tape and tape your fingers together, which is a common thing we do in therapy, in sports medicine, somebody body it.
0: taping, yeah.
1: It takes about 48 hours before there's one finger in the brain. It's plastic. If you cut the wow. tape and 40 that, but, but this is in 1996. In 2001, I would have come to you and said, time out, Diana, we lied to you. Two fingers, tape, 24 hours. Now we're in 2023 where the scanners are really cool, whatever. We now know these changes occur in minutes. They happen in 15 to 20 minutes. Wow. And so the principle of use it or lose it is incredible for rehab. So in my world as a therapist, the important thing is now we have to start thinking about things like immobilization after surgery, um, not moving after surgery, putting in a brace or a cast or whatever, how those maps can alter that quick. They happen very, very quickly. But yet, it happens in minutes. It does not. You know, 40 years ago, we believed your brain is the way it is. That's the way you are. Sorry, take it or leave it. Total garbage. I mean, we know your brain is 125,000 miles of wiring and that gets replaced every three weeks. I mean, it wow. literally wires itself every three weeks and you're like, what? which means for people in pain in my world, that means hope. You mean this can change, Adrian? Yes, ma'am. You mean I don't have to be like this forever? No, nope. it can change. And that's one of the coolest things about plasticity. Now, plasticity has a dark side to it where it can actually wire itself more negatively when we sit in the pain state, but on the flip side, it can be altered completely. Just incredible plasticity. Um, but yeah, you're right. It happens very, very quickly. And we need to be aware of that. It doesn't take years, it doesn't take months, it takes it's it's minutes to hours that it starts changing. Yeah.
0: Um, and so um what you the kind of the three aspects that you were describing um, the um sorry the, the like yeah, it doesn't quite go yeah sorry Riding the smudging and
1: laterality yeah and laterality
0: thank you um yeah. so would you say that graded motor imagery is one way to approach that yeah. as a therapist?
1: yeah, so so the the way we and and gray motor imagery is just a fancy term for a series of techniques that has been designed, tested, and validated to remap the brain. it's 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 that simple. And as there's, there's inside of that gray motor imagery bucket there are techniques like laterality. So we literally de- we deliberately take you through strategies to work on left and right, left and right. So you get faster, you get better, you get more accurate. So there's ways of doing that. We go through things like motor imagery, which is really engaging the premotor cortex, especially with mirror neurons. Where In, in the most basic ways, we imagine movements, but we don't move the body parts. Um, and it can be static, dynamic, functional, etc. It's a little more complex than that. But the idea would be that if a patient walks in your clinic, they have a knee replacement, they're definitely afraid of you. The therapist, no, no, here comes Diana. She's going to bend my knee. And you sit with that patient, calm and relaxed and say, hey, Frank, I can only imagine how you must feel. But listen, before we bend your knee, how about we close your eyes and imagine you bending your knee up, deep breath, feel the stretch and go back down Open your eyes. You're running the circuitry in the brain associated with knee flexion, but you're not doing it. So you don't get the end result isn't ow? The end result is I'm OK. And the brain actually desensitizes itself a little bit there. So we do motor imagery. We do um, uh, we do. Um, Sensory discrimination, where we use different sensations—sharp, doll, sharp, doll is the most common thing. Two-point discrimination, those things, and then finally, we can use mirror, mirror therapy to trick the brain, if you will. I hate that word "trick," but we, we, we facilitate movement. It, you move with them, and looking at a movement of a, in a mirror, although the body parts aren't moving. So, those are typically used. There's quite a bit of really good evidence. Um, for things like chronic back pain, uh, complex regional pain syndrome and phantom limb pain. Those are the three that a lot of that work has been done um, in the last Research-wise, few years. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I, next week I'm doing a big talk for the Department of Defense on phantom limb pain. And so we we just went through all the, the literature and um, uh, the evidence is mounting. It's it, it, It's getting there, it's really not bad. And then the interesting thing is as well, depending on what your audience, you know, who your audience is, I want people to also understand that plasticity changes also occurs in things like simple back pain, knee pain, rotator cuff injuries, ankle sprains, et cetera. Um, we, we're becoming more aware and it's, it's more commonplace. We always thought of these plasticity shifts to be with those very weird cases like phantom or CRPS. And, you know, I don't treat those. That's what Adrian and those weird pain people do know. We have now done a ton of research to show it happens in back pain, neck pain, knee pain, shoulder pain, you know, just expectation of pain, lumbar radiculopathy. So it's a very common thing. Uh, we, we did a study recently where our residents had patients come into outpatient therapy off the street, just run the mill. Hey, I'm here for therapy. And they had to have an injury from the knee down. So it could be an ACL injury. It could be a patellofemoral problem, Achilles tendon, plantar fasciitis, And one in three of them were abnormal on mapping testing. So they had a problem with left and right, they had a problem with two points. So it's a very common thing. And and I wish more clinicians would understand that because they can actually drive more of the complex pain states. Some people with just simple Achilles tendonitis may have a significant plasticity thing behind their pain experience that should also be addressed, not just the Achilles tendon, but obviously I'm biased. I'm the silly pain guy, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: And then something that you're you were bringing up but you're know, talking about being with that um you know total knee replacement uh patient who is coming in and um that i see in a lot of places is just pain education by itself reducing threat and kind of laying the groundwork for somebody to work with this um yeah. could you say a bit more about that
1: yeah i mean the, the area that that we actually have done most of our work in is pain neuroscience education and it's a simple process of teaching people more about pain, how pain works. Why does my pain last longer? It's supposed to be better, but I still hurt. Or why is my pain spreading? Or why when it's cold, I feel my knee? So we have studied and understand the science behind why that happens. We then sit with the patient and in simple metaphors, examples, pictures, I sit with the patient in layman's terms, explain to them about things like, hey, you have a sensitive alarm system. So when you bend your knee, you're going to feel your knee, but that's normal. It's telling you, hey, you're moving. So we we take away the threat, the anxiety, the fear. And the studies have shown us when we sit with people in pain and we teach them about pain, their fear goes down. Now that's important because fear drives pain powerfully. They're catastrophization. And catastrophization is kind of the cup half empty. That said, life's over, bury me now, I don't need a replacement, I'll never walk again. To the old, hey, I can do this. The guy with the funny accent explained it. I'm gonna be okay, right? So you turn the, the frown upside down. Um, by the way, the studies have shown robust shifts in pain, self-reported pain, like that pain goes down, lots of other things as well. But uh, pain neuroscience education, the idea is to calm people to move. What makes them better? Movement actually. So we, we don't explain pain out of people. If it was that simple, then um, smoke cessation should be, should be so simple. We just tell people, stop smoking, and they stop smoking. It doesn't happen. Education by itself isn't powerful to shift behavior, but it calms you makes you less afraid. And now the therapist comes and bends your knee and you'll let it be bent more, if you will. It's still the physical thing you do, the walking, the exercise, the stretch, the mindfulness, the breathing, the relaxation, the sleep, that those are the things that's going to move you forward. But you're not doing it because you're afraid, you're nervous, you're anxious, you don't understand. So we make the unknowns known. And that's what PNA really does. It's kind of the primer for the actual intervention. It, it it prepares you for the intervention. And so unfortunately a lot of people and maybe I was part of it way back, thought of p as a way of just you explain pain to people and they go, I got it. I'm pain free. Thanks, Adrian. It doesn't work that way. I wish it was. Good Lord, it would be amazing. But it doesn't work that way. They just become less afraid. And now they will do your therapy. Um, you still, if you're if you're overweight, you still have to go do exercise and change your eating beha- habits and your behaviors and all those things. You have to change that part. For people in pain, they need to start moving and moving and sleep better and eat better, those kind of things. But they're not doing it because they don't understand what's going on. And that's what p really does.
0: It reminds me of, you know, having accurate information about how pain works kind of reminds me of having like an accurate map in your brain. And now you can move with an accurate map. Now you have accurate information about where pain is coming from and you can move from that instead of every sensation is scary and unexplainable so kind of yeah um terrific so um how say there's a you know a therapist or actually my audience is i I like to connect people in different disciplines um so teachers music teachers um in particular some a group i'm interested in um the teaching you know fine motor complex Tasks and therapists um, of all types. Um, say somebody has an interest in finding out more. Where could you know, for example, starting a therapist? Where could they go um, to learn more about what it is that you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, so so just to be clear, I mean, our team focuses primarily on pain, right? So that's what we do. But pain is only one output of the brain one way to protect there's other there's there's linguistic there is sympathetic there is motor so there's all these things so for example we get invited now a lot to sports medicine conferences where athletes perform different when they're injured because the brain changes right so it's not just pain but that's what we do and specialize in so um i mean uh, easiest place is I work at Evidence in Motion. That's just happened to where I work. People can look me up there um, and they can email me anytime. I don't have any problem. I get hundreds of emails. People ask us about what we're doing. Um, you know, I again, there's just a lot of cool stuff out there. Um, I want to be careful. I don't know what your rules are here, but... If any of your members have never read uh, Norman Doidge's book, The Brain That Changes Itself, I so freaking highly recommend it. I buy that by boxes. I think Doidge owes me money because I, as I go to PT schools and OT schools, I hand that book out. I know there's a new version and whatever, but that was one of the coolest books I've ever read in my life as a therapist. And, and as I go around, I tell therapists, go buy it. They, they You can buy it for a dollar used on Amazon. If you don't have a dollar, call me. I'll give you a dollar. Um, It is one of the coolest books I've ever read in my life because it's plastic. And um, I would highly encourage anybody that's interested in this, and it's a beautiful book for any person, a teacher, a a student. So many therapists on weekends come and say, you know, my son has a learning disability and I read that book. Um, That book and some of the programs in that book, Diana, changed my son's life. My son is on the spectrum of autism and um, just graduated from college, um, four-year degree because my wife took him through a lot of those programs. Of remapping his brain, if you will, during the summer breaks. I I own the Sylvan Learning Center because we we spent so much money in tutoring to help my son, and and it was the brain just wouldn't talk, the pieces wouldn't talk to each other. And what these neuroscientists are doing is these incredible programs where the brain can talk to parts through through games and playing games or whatever. And uh, anyway, it but it came from that book, and so I will always tell people if you want to just learn more about it, go read that book if you haven't read it. And then um, from there on out, there's so many cool things out there. Um, Rama Chandran's work in California is amazing. Um, Nancy Beale has since retired, but there's a lot of her original work is out there. Um, there's some seriously cool stuff out there in the world. But um, yeah, they can always email me at Evidence in Motion. And um, we can always advise them to go look up some other cool stuff.
0: Terrific. Well, <laughs> thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. Oh,
1: no worries. It was nice to connect with you again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Terrific.